The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. This is actually my favorite time of the year. Um, if you didn't, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, uh, you might not know or you might have to be reminded that today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent just means coming. And so for Christians throughout history, Advent means, in terms of a liturgical calendar, Advent is the first day of the new year, of the new Christian year. And so this is a time before Christmas Eve and Christmas Day where we anticipate the coming of Jesus into the world and all that uh, Jesus has done and is doing. So if you're the kind of person that makes New Year's resolutions— you can start today. You don't even have to wait until January. You can, so then by the time we get to January, you can have quit all of your resolutions and feel really good about it. Uh, but it's a great time of year, and I hope that in this season that God will do something miraculous and beautiful, inspiring in your life um, as you see Jesus anew. And as we open the scriptures, let me just pray for our time together. Creator God, we're grateful that you have called us into this company of people and that you have made us your own. And as we enter into this Advent season, would you give us eyes again to see the real Jesus and what he is doing in the world, how he has transformed and restored our lives and brought healing to us. And God, we would ask that you would give it to us in ways that would inspire us to live as your people. And so Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and open our ears. And toward that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching so that we can see you and hear you again and leave this place, God, knowing that we have had a genuine encounter with your word and your word alone. And we ask for all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, for, for most of us, I know that we are wrapping up Thanksgiving week, and so some of us had people travel here. My mom was with us and our family. I know some of you are just returning from travels. And I'm imagining that while you were with friends or family at Thanksgiving, or if you did a Friendsgiving, something like that, then one of the things that you did with that group of people is that you shared stories, and that while you were sharing stories, you remembered or you saw glimpses of either why you are the way that you are, why you don't wanna be the way that they are, but what I'm amazed by just in knowing people is how fundamentally um, we are shaped by the people around us, especially people who have known us our entire lives, like our family. So I had a college roommate who was very high strung and anxiety ridden and he kind of bragged about his grades and nothing was ever right or perfect or anything like that. Nothing was ever good enough. And then we got to graduation weekend and his parents came to town, and they came over to our house for lunch before graduation, and I met his mother, and that explained it all. <laughs> like, you've had this experience, so couples, when I perform their wedding, um, most of the couples, I have them go through a, a tool called prepare, and then we talk about all the things that usually or typically come up in marriage you have to deal with about your family background and their, your future spouse's family background and how you're going to handle finances and if you have kids and all of that. And, and most times, 
it's pretty typical, the things that you would expect. But then every now and then there's a person in the marriage that is really different than what you would expect, and they don't understand each other, or they're having trouble communicating about one thing in particular, and I don't get it, and they don't get it, and then we get to the rehearsal dinner, and I meet the family, and I go, oh, he's right about your father. Like, she's right about your mother. And that's just kind of who we are. Like, that's, we are people who are products of other people. And the older I get, one of the things that's become clearer and clearer to me is that you don't know anybody until you know their story. And that you can think that you know somebody, and what you know when you haven't met someone's family or the people around them that love them deeply, you kinda know what they would put like maybe on their Tinder profile or like on Facebook, like you're getting their resume and when the family comes around, like you get the real thing, like that's why they're like this or worse. Your family's around and you realize that's why I'm like this. And we had this experience this week. My wife and I are in the kitchen, my mother's in the living room and she says something and I just tense up and I go, that's why I'm like this. We're products of people's stories. And one of the beautiful things about Advent is that it gives us an opportunity to re-enter Jesus's story. And I'm not terribly old, but I'm old enough to know this and be concerned about it, that never before in the course of my lifetime have we had so many people who have spoken so publicly about Jesus or with the name of Jesus on their lips, and they don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus because they don't know the Jesus story. There are too many of us, too many people around the world, who basically know the crucifixion story. And Dallas Willard says that that turns Christians into vampire believers who need Jesus for his blood and nothing else. Like, we just need Jesus to die. But all of the stuff that Jesus taught, all the things he said, who he spent time with, who his family was, like, that doesn't matter to us. And the reason that that's a problem is that is that doesn't matter to you. If it, we get to a place where what Jesus actually did and said and taught, the people he spent time with, his family, if we don't know that story, then we risk missing Jesus altogether because you don't know anybody until you know their story. And there are too many people who know little incidental episodic facts about what Jesus did, but they don't know Jesus. And what a tragedy it would be for you to reach the end of your life and not know who Jesus was. And so when the gospel writer Matthew starts telling Jesus the story, he doesn't tell it like you or I would tell it. Like if someone asked you, like maybe they might in the next couple of weeks, to tell them about the birth of Jesus, your version might have something to do with shepherds 
and stars and stables and King Herod. Your version of that story, my version of that story, would be pretty much like the nativity set that you probably set out this week. But that's not where Matthew begins his story. Matthew begins his story in what seems like to the naked eye might be the most boring way to start the story possible. Like nobody's singing, there are no hymns, there's no starry night, there's no sleeping baby. It's just a list of names. This is how Matthew begins. He says, this is the family history, the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed, the coming king. You will see in this history that Jesus is descended from King David and that he is also descended from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and Judah's brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, and Perez and Zerah's mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amat. Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. And Boaz's mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth, a Moabite woman who converted to the Hebrew faith. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And David was the king of the nation of Israel. David was the father of Solomon. His mother was Bathsheba, and she was married to a man named Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Isn't this extremely interesting? <laughs> like you are riveted at this point. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. And Josiah's family lived at the time when God's chosen people of Israel were deported from the promised land to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah had a son, Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abud. Abud was the father of Elakim. Elakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mothan. Mothan was the father of Jacob. I can tell you're taking notes. <laughs> Jacob was the father of Joseph, who married a woman named Mary. It was Mary who gave birth to Jesus. And it is Jesus who is the Savior, the Anointed One. None of you would tell your friends this is the story of Jesus. Not if you actually wanted to keep them as friends. But if you were living in the ancient world and you want to tell someone story, this is how you would do it. Especially if you were a Jew, because one of the things, one of the hallmarks of being a true Jew is being able to show that all throughout your lineage that you were a Jew. And also, if you wanted to serve, if you wanted to be something like a priest, you had to show an unbroken line all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. And if you had any claim to the kingship of Israel, you had to show an unbroken line all the way back to David. And that's part of the reason that Matthew tells a story, that Matthew wants people to know as they open up this book and they read this, that Jesus is both the priest and a king. But that's not all Matthew wants people to know. Because Matthew does something 
in this list of names that no one else would do. Matthew names five women. And those women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And each one of them has a son. And each one of them has a son under suspicious conditions. And the reason no one would tell you this about these women is because in the ancient world, women had no standing. A woman couldn't own property. Matter of fact, she was property. For her whole life, she was either property of her father and then later her husband. And in the ancient world, Jewish men would go to the temple and they would pray and they would thank God that God had not made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. But there they are, these five women. And what Matthew is doing is he is telling you, he is telling me that you will not, I will not understand Jesus if I don't understand the stories of these women. And the first one that Matthew talks about is Tamar. And her story is in Genesis 38. But her story doesn't actually begin with her. It begins with her father-in-law, a man named Judah. And Judah is Joseph's brother. And he decides to leave home. And he goes off to a foreign land. And there he meets a woman. And he meets this woman and marries her. And she, the, the two of them have a child, a son, and his name was Ur. And then they have a second son. His name is Onan. And then they have a third son. And when those boys get old enough, he marries them off. And Ur marries a woman named Tamar. But Genesis tells us that Ur is wicked. And he dies really quickly. And so Judah does what he's supposed to do, that he hooks up Tamar with his second son, Onan. But Onan doesn't finish the deal. He disobeys both God and his father, and he is killed. And so Judah comes to Tamar and he says, um, my, uh, my last son is really too young to get married. So keep on your widow's clothes and go back to your father and when he's old enough, well, I'll send for you, and then you can marry my last son, my final son. Except he doesn't. And Tamar stays with her father. And in the meantime, Judah's wife dies. So after Judah's mourning period, he has to take a business trip. And so he loads up a bunch of stuff and he takes a business trip. But Tamar hears about this. And she goes to the city where she knows Judah is going, takes off her widow's clothes, puts on regular clothes, but veils her face. And she waits at the entrance of the city 
And there she meets Judah. And she looks at Judah's son and says, he looks old enough to me. So Judah believes that Tamar is a prostitute. And so he hooks up with Tamar. Then he turns to her and says, well, what do I owe you? And she says, well, what can you pay? And he said, how about sheep? I'm going to pay you in sheep, which none of you would take that deal. (laughs) And Tamar looks around and says, it doesn't look like you have any sheep with you. So Judah decides, you know what? I do have some of my personal effects. I have some things that I own that are valuable. Why don't I do this? I will leave them with you. You can have them. And then when I get home, I'll send my business manager with sheep. And she says, deal. Well, Judah goes home. Little time goes by. He sends his business manager back to the city with the sheep. He starts looking around the city and says, "Um, I'm looking for the temple prostitute that was here. Uh, I've got some payment for her. And the people in the city go, what are you talking about? We don't have a temple prostitute here. So he goes home. And he tells Judah, he says, I I went back and uh, they say they don't have a temple prostitute, so I brought your sheep back. And also, I heard while I was there that your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Well, Judah is incensed. And he says, you go and find Tamar. And you tell her that what she has done is unrighteous. Take her out and have her burned. Okay, boss. He heads out, finds Tamar, says, you've, you've become pregnant out of wedlock. This is a disgrace to you and to your family. We're gonna have you burned. Tamar says, "Mm, not so fast. (laughs) Because the person whose child I carry, this is his stuff. When Judah hears about this, he says, go get Tamar and bring her back to live here because she is more righteous than I am. See, you really ought to read your Bible. There's some crazy stuff in there. (laughs) And she does. And she is in the line of Jesus. And in this one little story, reaching all the way back to Genesis 38, we discover why Jesus does the things that Jesus does does, why Jesus treats people the way Jesus treats people. And one of the first things we learn is that when it comes to Jesus, 
The excluded are included. Women in the ancient world had virtually no options. They were the property of their fathers or their husbands. And now that Tamar has had two husbands who died, what is she supposed to do? She's excluded from the family, sent back to live with her father, who has already done his best to offload her to someone else. She's this cunning because she has to be. Have you known anyone? Have you ever met anyone who lost two spouses? Have you ever felt at any point in your life that there was absolutely no future for you? It didn't have to be your fault. You didn't have to cause it. Just you ran out of runway, everything was done, and there was no place to go. That's Tamar. And so it's no wonder when you fast forward in the life of Jesus that he stands at a well with a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and extends hospitality and grace to her that other people don't extend. Jesus includes the excluded, not simply because Jesus is Jesus, but because Jesus comes from people who were excluded. That they are his family. And surely I'm not the only person in the world who when you hear a story that maybe other people seem callous or strained from, you think to yourself, oh no, that happened to my aunt, my uncle, my cousin. These women have endured tragedy. And Jesus says, for all of you who have felt overlooked and left out because other people made judgments about situations that they weren't in, You can be a part of my family. The second thing we learn is that the vulnerable are protected. When Tamar loses two husbands and Judah refuses to give up the third son, she has no option but to become destitute or poverty-stricken. And if it sounds weird to you that someone would be married and then the husband die and been given to another brother, if that sounds weird to you, it should. <laughs> because I have a brother. And if something were to happen to me or happen to him, neither one of our wives would be excited about that prospect at all. But this goes all the way back, and it is about protecting women in a world where women had no rights. 
and no property. This is what Deuteronomy says about it. It says, when two brothers are living together, sharing family property that hasn't been divided, if one of them dies, leaving a widow without sons, his widow must not be married to a man outside the family. The brother should marry his sister-in-law and try to have children with her in his brother's name. Moses says, her firstborn son will be named after the brother who died so that the first husband's name will not disappear from Israel and that son will receive his share of the family inheritance. If a man doesn't want to marry his brother's widow, she should go to the elders at the city gate and make a formal complaint. My husband died and his brother refuses to keep his name alive in Israel. He won't marry me and give me children. The elders of the city will send for him and try to persuade him. He may resist and say, I don't want to marry her. In that case, the widow will come up to him with the elders looking on and pull one of his sandals off his foot, spit in his face, and then say, if a man won't make sure his brother's family line continues, he deserves this kind of disgrace for not continuing his brother's house. From then on throughout Israel, his family will be known as the house with the missing sandal, and they'll all be disgraced. That is some serious ancient shade right there. <laughs> but this is the way that family lines would continue. And that property would stay in the family. Leverett marriage existed to protect women. But Judah's family has disgraced themselves. For first of all, First of all, Tamar's husband, her first husband was evil, wicked. And Onan did not want to be the father of her children. And now Judah, he's cast her out back home. So it's not surprising that later on, when a group of men bring another powerless and vulnerable woman to Jesus who has been caught in adultery, that Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you because I know that you don't have very many good options. I don't condemn you because clearly you are suffering at the hands of evil men. Jesus is not making up his ministry as he goes. He is living out a story where the vulnerable are always protected. And the final thing we learn is what good fathers give. Just think about Judah for a minute. He's lost two sons. Have you known people who have lost children? Most of us would confess that we can't dream of anything worse than losing our children. And he's lost two. And he thinks he knows a black widow when he sees one. And he's not about to give up his third. 
And this is the gospel story. That Judah resists giving his last son, but God freely gives his first son. Knowing what it would cost. And that's why, Ecclesia, this time of year during Advent, we ask you to do crazy things like spend less and give more and worship fully and love all. Because we want to emulate, we want to reproduce the self-giving sacrifice that God gave to us, that God gives freely. And we want to be people who give freely. So in a moment when we share communion together, we'll have our offering baskets back out. And that's an opportunity for you and all through Advent to partner with us and our friends at Living Water. Because like the video mentioned, everything, everything, everything starts with water. You can't build communities. You can't build society. You can't build infrastructure if people don't have clean water. And this is our opportunity to step into the full story of Jesus and not simply be vampire Christians who only need Jesus for his blood. And so may your Advent season May this holiday be full of living out the best that God has given you and the full story of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray for you. God, would you show us how to give as Jesus gave to us, that we would live freely with open hands, that we would be grateful people for all that you have done, the way that you have shaped us, and the way that you have brought so much joy and love and fullness into our lives. And may we live it out. May we live your story. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.